0: Pushkin.
1: The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobilecom slash now.
2: You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards, and they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan, Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.
0: This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam so Welcome to the show. Today, I am joined by journalist and broadcaster... Jake Tapper. He's the anchor of CNN's The Lead with Jake Tapper, weekdays from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Whether you live stateside or abroad, you've likely watched his show at one point or another. Although Tapper has been working on television since the early 2000s, he came to prominence during the Trump presidency. In four years, Tapper transformed as a leading voice in broadcast news. In a climate of partisanship, hot takes, and bite sized opinions, he sees himself as fair, researched, and level headed. His job is to report the news, he says, not to opine about it. He poses tough questions to all people on his show, Democrats and Republicans alike. We get into that in this talk. His latest project is a book called The Devil May Dance, set in 1961 around a congressman and his wife who've been given marching orders by Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy to travel west. The mission, to look into potential mob connections of Frank Sinatra, a close friend to John F. Kennedy. It's a page-turning historical thriller as the couple moves from Capitol Hill to the Hollywood Hills, only to discover a different kind of corruption. The central question of the book is, Who are you willing to get in bed with? And when you dance with the devil, what does that do to you? In some ways, the book mirrors Tapper's experiences in Washington. The hustle and bustle, the fraudulence, the deception, the power dynamics, the corruption. And that's what I was most interested in exploring with Tapper. How do you go about telling the truth on TV, in a city that works overtime to bend, break, and distort the truth. What is the responsibility of these networks as we look toward our political future? When you dance with the devil, what does that do to you? Tapper has made a career out of asking tough, but fair questions. My hope, simply, was to do the same. Thanks for listening. Jake Tapper, thank you for being here.
3: It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: You know, one of your favorite films I found in research is Groundhog Day. Love it. Which I found kind of funny because when I think of what your life may look like (laughs) on a day-to-day basis, I could see it having a Groundhog Day quality to it.
3: Certainly the last four or five years, no question. Uh, The same... Madness and the same people making the same mistakes over and over again. Though at least in in Groundhog Day, at least, they haven't learned the lesson because the day has rewound and they haven't had that experience yet. But watching some of the political players and members of the news media make the same mistakes over and over and over again. How do you
0: stay sane in that day to day?
3: Well, I have... Um, a great family, a loving wife and two amazing kids. And quite honestly, they get me through it because I come home and they're focused on their stuff. You know, my son's focused on his gaming and my daughter is focused on school and and, uh, she's 13 now, so the social scene. And my wife has her other stuff that she's working on having to do with, you know, just some family stuff. And so there's a lot going on where, look, I'm the breadwinner of the family, but I'm not the most important person in the family. I definitely am the butt of most of the jokes. (laughs) Although it's uh, family, we all make fun of each other, but definitely I'm the, I'm the, the one who's mocked the most and probably deservedly so.
0: What do they make fun of you for?
3: Being on my phone too much, being lame. You know, I'm a dad. Being a nerd, having too much junk in my office having too many comic books being old <laughs> that's that's a big one just being old and embarrassing um i have a convertible oh. which i enjoy i enjoy unrepentantly let me say because not because it looks cool but because it's a pleasurable experience to drive a convertible that's it is fun a little
0: bit because it looks cool
3: i don't think so honestly i don't maybe i wear ray-bans because it looks cool as opposed to like cheaper sunglasses, sure. But no, it's because it's very enjoyable to drive with the wind and the sun in your face. I don't know which is more embarrassing to my kids, if I'm driving in the convertible listening to Dave Matthews or if I'm driving in the convertible listening to old-school rap.
0: I think it's the Dave Matthews, but we can get into that later. The Goofy Dad image is very different from the one people came to love starting around 2017, a year into the Trump presidency. It was around then that you started receiving nationwide attention for your work. There were profiles of you in GQ, The Atlantic, The New York Times, hailing you as our crisis anchor, our wartime conciliary, here to sort through the befuddlement and fear six hours a week. But I want to revisit your response to this wave of positive press. You said, it's nice to be recognized, but I also know that a lot of the people who are happy with me now are not going to be happy with me in four to eight years. And that I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. Now that we're in that new four-year period you mentioned, are we not supposed to be happy with you?
3: I mean, I think one of the things that's going on is that the insanity uh, of Trumpism continues, uh, and instead of exorcising the cancer from the body, the GOP has decided to—not all of them, but a lot—too many members of the GOP have decided to, you know, embrace the metastasizing of this cancer of lying and in, indecency. So I'm still covering that, and so maybe people are who who didn't like Trump are still. Fans, but I, I get a lot of grief from people on the left for my coverage that's critical of Biden, or asks questions uh, that might be offensive to certain groups. I've been this week. I think that our show has been covering the Israeli-Palestinian conflict fairly and accurately, and it's a very difficult story to cover. I asked a progressive congresswoman a question along the lines of, "What is the appropriate response to Hamas?" indiscriminately firing rockets on the Israeli civilian population. And I, I got grief from that, from the left. And I got grief from the left for attacking or criticizing, I should say, uh, Biden for any number of things.
0: Why do you think you got grief from this past week?
3: I think that there are people on, on uh, who see it through lenses that do not allow them to see it in complicated ways. Uh, and I think it is a complicated conflict and uh, not just to defend a question that is unsympathetic to Hamas, but to to defend questions that might be unsympathetic to IDF actions. I think people are are very critical when it comes to this story. And I'm not trying to both sides it, because it's a story that is not a both sides story, but it is a complicated story that goes back centuries. Even if you're just talking about this Sheikh Jarrah story out of East Jerusalem, it goes back to the 1870s, I mean, the land dispute. But I I think that... um, there's an assumption by some that if you criticized Trump for uh, certain behaviors or lying or indecency, you know, child separation policy was just indecent, that therefore you believe everything that progressives are supposed to believe. And that's not accurate in my case. I, uh, I'm a journalist and A, regardless of my personal views, I have a professional job to do. And, and B, when I am interviewing a progressive individual, I'm going to try to challenge their views, just like when I interview a conservative individual, I'm going to challenge their views.
0: That both sides it criticism has come up again and again in relation to you. Do you think any of that is fair?
3: The both Mm sides-ism? I think that the both sides-ism is a fair criticism to wield when it is being used in a a lazy way by journalists. And I certainly have been guilty of both sides-ism. And just for those who are listening who aren't sure what I'm talking about, both sides is like when you... Let's say, for example, the the January 6th commission, uh, which is probably not going to be formed, and you act as if this is because both sides can't get together, the Democrats and Republicans, so uh, there's gridlock, blah, blah, blah. When that's not the situation, the reality of the situation is the Republican Party has decided, leaders of the Republican Party has to have decided they don't want this commission for any number of reasons, um, but let's just say that it's not going to be good for them politically. Um, and instead of trying to fix... The commission, Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader of the House, asked for a bunch of things to be changed. And Pelosi conceded and, you know, she gave on all of them. And he still opposed it. And Mitch McConnell is opposing it. And clearly not because he wants to fix it to make it better. He just doesn't want it. So that's the, to say, oh, you know, Washington can't get its act together. Democrats and Republicans g- guilty, blah, 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 pox on both their houses. That would be both sides of uh, them because it's not. It's one side. The Republicans have decided they don't want this. I, have I been guilty of both sidesism in the past? I'm sure every journalist has been guilty of that in the past. But I don't think the, Israel, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in general, I don't. I, I think that it is a very complicated story. The, Israelis, the Israeli people have a right to live without fear of rocket attacks and terrorism. And the Palestinian people have a right to live in uh, their own country uh, with you know, without blockades, blocking them from being, being able to get basic supplies and with the right of self-determination. And you can look at the situation there and say, well, both of them, that's not both sidesism to say, I want everybody in that region to be able to enjoy a life of prosperity and peace in the country of their choosing. Um, and I don't think it's both sidesism to say that the settlement policy of Netanyahu and the Netanyahu government has not made getting to that peace easily, nor has uh, Hamas rockets. And I'm not saying that they're the same thing. They're not, but they're just different things that are infringing on the process. But I mean, you run the risk of when trying to say, look, this is not just one side. This is a conflict that needs to be covered in all of its complicated issues and histories and complexities. That's not both sidesism, though, I don't think.
0: Sometimes both sidesism gets conflated into just sort of natural journalistic skepticism. And I think one of your... Greatest qualities and something you've been praised for is your visible physical skepticism in the face of
3: deceit. Yeah, that's not, but that's not purposeful. You know, that's just my face. That's just your face. That's just my face. It's not like I'm not trying to have my eyebrows do the talking or my head tilt uh, express anything. I'm literally just engaged and trying to have this conversation. And sometimes, the people with whom I'm having it are making that difficulty. And I'm not a good poker player. You know what I'm thinking. You know, sometimes people, by the way, read things into my face that are not intended and mm-hmm. not what I was feeling. So it can be a great curse as well.
0: You haven't given me the face yet. So I, I will keep listeners posted.
3: Well, you are very you seem very nice and earnest. I don't, I don't have any reason to give you the face. And it's also not something I wield. It's not like, you know, Green Lantern taking out his ring. I mean, it's not. It's more like the Hulk, I think. More like Bruce Banner.
0: But underneath that, the skepticism you display, which I think you wield judiciously, is around the machinations of Washington often. Right. And you have said in several interviews of working in Washington, we're not in the world of adults. When you go to enough of these functions, you start to realize that some of the elected officials, these people in power, have real mental health issues.
3: They do. Not all of them, but a lot of them like, I, you know, it's not like um, let, let me just make up uh, or let me just say Doug Jones. All right. And like you know, former senator from Alabama. It's not like he's any different. I had dinner with him once. It's not like he's any different off camera than he is on camera. I mean, that's, a bad, that's a horrible example because nobody thinks anything's wrong with Doug Jones. But some of these people are mentally ill. I mean, like, look at Marjorie Taylor Greene or Paul Gosar, the congressman from Arizona. I'm not a psychiatrist, I mean, or a psychologist. I'm not qualified to say that either of them is mentally ill. But I can say their behavior is odd and aberrant and that I would be interested in hearing what a qualified person who examines them would think. One of the other challenges of this era is I don't know what is mental illness versus I don't know what is lack of intelligence versus I don't know what is cynical cosplaying. You know, I don't know who is pretending to be a troll. Let me ask you a question. So like, so Senator Ted Cruz, you know, he went to Princeton, he went to Harvard Law. He has a wife, he has two daughters. When all of a sudden his Twitter feed starts like mocking trans kids, or all of a sudden his tweets start like, you know, boosting some Russian anti-American propaganda, making fun of our military. What is that? What is that an example of? Is he just, he just has figured out that this is how to get attention to run for president in 2024? Has he had a breakdown? He's smart, so you know it's not lack of intelligence. What is going on? My guess would be he is cynically trying to become a troll because he thinks that that part of Trumpism will get him attention. Do I think that most of the House Republicans who voted to disenfranchise Pennsylvania and Arizona voters based on lies, that most of them are mentally ill? No, I do not. Do I think some of them are? Yeah. Definitely. Some of them are also unintelligent. Most of them are probably just cynically going along because Republican voters have bought the big lie because they were lied to for months and months and months. You posed that
0: question to me about Senator Cruz and why he may behave the way he does. And instead of offering my answer, I wanted to go back to a diagnosis of D.C., that you wrote in 1998 for the Washington City paper. Uh Uh-oh. You were in your late 20s at the time, and you wrote, Power does a weird thing to people. More than once, I have found myself laughing my ass off and nodding in agreement while some fading star has held forth on something I could care less about. Offended me, even. Does that make me a nitwit? A himbo waiting to happen? I think it just makes me toweringly average in Washington. Just another creature who is here because this is where the national vat of power lies. And I'm sitting here waiting for my bowl full.
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't think i do that anymore. But that was an observation about what it was like to be in my 20s in Washington, D.C. You know, when you are trying to, you go to parties and you're trying to make connections. At that point, I was... Very early on in my journalism career, (laughs) like days into my full-time journalism career, having, you know, worked for weeks. And I was, you know, and I was talking about, I don't even know who I was talking about, but Washington Post editors or local TV news correspondents. I mean, anybody, when you're trying to climb in a very competitive industry, I don't think, by the way, that 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 behavior is... So unusual for anybody in their twenties trying to succeed or thirties trying to succeed professionally and trying to make alliances.
0: I offer that response purely for the first line, which is power does a weird thing to people.
3: And that's one of the things about. Um, and I'm not trying to awkwardly change the subject to my novel, but but that is one of the subjects that I try to talk about in my novel, and the idea of what do people do to get close to power or to accrue power. And the first book, The Hellfire Club, which came out in 98, is the theme is really what kinds of compromises are you willing to make in order to do good? Because the thing that most people need to understand about Washington is that everyone here thinks they're a good guy. Everyone here thinks that they are the hero of the narrative. I guarantee you, Stephen Miller, Sebastian Gorka, I'm not comparing these people, but just everyone, uh, Rashida Tlaib, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Matt Gates, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Kevin McCarthy, every one of them thinks that they are the hero of the narrative. I have my own opinions of who's more heroic than others, et cetera. But everyone thinks that they're willing to do that. The theme of the first book was, what compromises are you willing to make in order to achieve the good you want to achieve? And at what point do those compromises start overtaking your life so much so that you can't even... Remember the good that you wanted to achieve. The theme of the second book, uh, which just came out, The Devil May Dance, is about who are you willing to get in bed with? If When you dance with the devil, what does that do to you? I mean, the core of it is about the JFK-Sinatra relationship. What did it do to JFK to be allied with Sinatra? What did it do to Sinatra to be allied with mobsters? And then there's more that goes on from there. But that is part of what I have witnessed in my decades in Washington is— are these phenomenons of, I guarantee you, they all come here thinking they're going to do good. Now, maybe some of them are more focused on it than others, uh, but they all think that they're, they're all the heroes of their own narrative. Some of them come down here and they think, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to shitpost on Twitter.
0: I'm glad you brought this up because you talked about your characters grappling with dancing with the devil. The last four years, you have spent countless hours every day doing this dance? And I guess I want to know how you think you've done.
3: That's a good question. So the dancing with the devil in the book has to do with the alliances you make and when you make alliances with people that are of questionable ethical or moral content. So for instance, JFK making an alliance with Sinatra or Sinatra making an alliance with the mob and and on and on. Now you're asking about my dances with the devil in the sense of engaging with the Trump White House, which I, I guess is similar, but I wouldn't say that these are alliances per se. But taking your question in the good faith way in which it was intended, I think I did okay, but I don't think that this era is going to be one that anybody looks back at fondly and approvingly. Let me give you an example of somebody that I, th- I think is more, perhaps more relevant to this than me, although not dissimilar. And that is, it's just easy for me to talk about other people. And that is Maggie Haberman from the New York Times who won a Pulitzer for her coverage. And because of her sourcing, we know so much more about what happened and what was going on in the Trump White House. But obviously she did have sources in the Trump White House. And obviously not every article she wrote for the front page of the New York Times, and there would be days when she had two or three bylines on the front page, They were, they didn't read like, you know, Washington, President Trump is a effing moron. And, you know, which is what a lot of liberals wanted her to write. And that's not a fair expectation. She's there to report on what happened. And she was there and she was providing perfectly critical coverage, but she was sourced in the White House. Now, I guess what was I doing? I did. I have source. I had sources in the White House, too. I did not break stories like Maggie did. But on the other hand, perhaps I was more outwardly publicly critical of the indecencies and the lies than other people with other journalism jobs could be. I don't think that anybody covered this era perfectly.
0: Do you think it's more difficult to separate journalism and commerce when you're working on TV? You know, I think it's so much of the criticism you and CNN have been met with, some of which is fair and some of which maybe you don't think is fair, is that ultimately... It's a philosophical question because CNN is in the business of covering phenomenons. Yeah. And yet, isn't CNN in part responsible for generating the phenomenon of Trump?
3: Well, that's very Marshall McLuhan of you. Uh, But it's meta. It's a meta question. And the question of how one separates oneself from the phenomenon while not becoming part of the phenomenon is a very, very fair one and one that I grapple with and I know a lot of people grapple with. And Jeff Zucker, my boss, has said that if he could go back and do things differently, he would not run as many Trump rallies live, start to finish. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It's a phenomenon. What do you do when a phenomenon takes place? And I agree with Jeff's assessment that we ran too many of those rallies start to finish and not enough rallies of his opponents, even if they would not have rated as well. I do think that we provided critical coverage and Trump never gave me another interview after I pushed him on the fact that his attacking Judge Curiel for, quote unquote, being a Mexican was the definition of racism. That was June or July of 2016. Here's a clip from that interview. When Hillary Clinton says this is a racist attack and you reject that, if you are saying he can't do his job because of his race, is that not the definition of racism?
4: I don't think so at all. No. no, no. He's proud of his heritage. I, I respect him for Are you that. you're saying he can't do his job because of it. Uh, look, he's proud of his heritage, okay? I'm building a wall. Now, I think I'm going to do very well he's with Hispanics. Citizen? You know why I'm going to do well with Hispanics? Because I'm going to bring back jobs, and they're going to get jobs right now. They're going to get jobs. I think I'm going to do very well with Hispanics, but we're building a wall. He's a Mexican. We're building a wall between here and Mexico. The answer is he is giving us very unfair rulings. Rulings that people can't even believe. This case should have ended years ago on summary judgment. The best lawyers, I have spoken to so many lawyers, they said, this is not a case, this is a case that should have ended. I've- this judge is giving us unfair rulings. Now I say, why? Well, I want to, I'm building a wall, okay? And it's a wall between Mexico, not another country. He's not, my, he's not from. Mexico. In my opinion, he's from Indiana, he is his Mexican Mexican heritage, and he's very proud of but it. You're not from Scotland Excuse because me. you have
3: Scottish heritage. Hey, one of the things I will also say about the phenomenon of Trump was, while he was reinventing how to campaign by doing these demagogic but also freewheeling, spirited speeches, his rivals were hiding. Let me just give you an example of that. I took over State of the Union, the Sunday show for CNN, in, I think, June 2015. We offered, in this order, Hillary Clinton, then Jeb Bush, then Marco Rubio, the full hour of my first show and also any subsequent shows, but especially the first show. And all three turned us down. Hillary Clinton, Jeb Bush, and Marco Rubio. No, I'm not saying that that is why... None of them became president. But it does suggest a certain old way of doing business that was not adaptive to how Trump was changing how politics was done. And yeah, it's crazy. You look back and you think, oh, my God, you know, Trump was phoning in to the Today Show. Who does that? You know, that's not. And look, we took phoners from anyone, any one of these major presidential candidates, And it wasn't only Trump, but very few of them adapted. So I guess the larger point I'm making is, yeah, cable news, network news was part of the reason why the phenomenon of Trump happened in 2015, but also the territory was being ceded, C-E-D-E-D, just in case people don't know what I meant, Uh, it was being ceded by his rivals and also... Very few of them were willing to take him on.
0: Did those same candidates that you mentioned, Hillary Clinton, Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, did their camps ever say no to 45, 60 minutes of unfettered tape from their rallies in Myrtle Beach or Des Moines or Grand Rapids?
3: Oh, no, I'm not. No, I'm not saying that. And and that stuff, that, uh, like I said, I I didn't do that. I didn't air those rallies. And and I, this is not me standing on some matter of principle. I, he just never held them during my show, so it never happened. But no, of course not. Of course not. And that's a mistake. It's a mistake that all those rallies were carried as they were. But that's not the sole reason why Donald Trump became president, that people ran those rallies in 2015, unfettered, start to finish on cable news. It was very clear by... I would say December 2015, the nature of Donald Trump's candidacy and appears to hatred and bigotry, whether it came to Muslims or Latinos or whatever, you'd have to go back and and think of how many people you think gave Donald Trump tough interviews. I mean, I would posit that I think I did. And I think that Anderson Cooper did. And I, I think other people did. But I think there are a lot more people in the news media who didn't.
0: I rewatched both your interviews with him in preparation for this. In the moment, how did you think you did?
3: You know, here's the thing, Sam. I'm not, like, satisfied with how I do anything. There's nothing I do that I think, oh, that was great. I'm a great husband. I'm a great dad.
1: Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers, was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? by using a combination of technologies. The cellular vehicle to everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business unconventional awards an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at t-mobile.com slash unconventionalawards. That's tmobilecom slash Unconventional Awards. See you there. Small
2: business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one of a kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do or die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Listen to the Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com/business/podcast. Slash slash Chase. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JP Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024 JP Morgan Chase & Company.
3: great author. I i don't sit around doing that. That's not how I'm wired.
0: I had a feeling that was true.
3: <laughs> so I think that I can point to that interview if my kids say, you know, were you one of these people that you criticized for being easy on Trump? I can say, well, this is the last interview that they let me do, and you can watch it, and you tell me. But do I think it was tough enough? You're asking me from the vantage point of May 2021, where... 400,000 people died of COVID under his watch and all the rest? No, I don't think it was tough enough. There is an Overton window aspect to all of this, which is, and for the people who don't know, I'll just shorthand what the Overton window is, but it's basically the degree to which something can become socially acceptable. So if you're the only person in news media or one of two or three people in news media doing tough interviews of somebody, there's an Overton window, window aspect to it. You're part of a press core. So you can go far and then get blackballed, which is what happened to me. I never did a Trump interview again, mm-hmm. but that's also the risk when, when you, you know, step outside the Overton window and you fall.
0: You said earlier, Trump is not the first person to exploit this system, and he probably won't be the last. And that's why I keep circling this point, which is not to relitigate the past, but rather... Think toward the future a little bit, because you know better than most that Trump is not the end of Trumpism. There will be others with a similar agenda running a campaign in his spirit.
3: Well, it's not just they have the same kind of spirit. I mean, I've been I've been saying this on on television now for months. The people who tried to overturn the election, who tried to undermine democracy in this country, are going to try it again, and they're going to try to do so in a better position. They will have new laws to restrict access to voting. They are already doing that. And they're trying to replace the Republicans who acted with integrity during the election. They're trying to replace them with Republicans who will help them overturn the election. A a perfect example of this is very conservative Republicans, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who upheld the Georgia election, and then the runoffs for the Senate and the Trump forces are trying to replace him with a congressman uh, named Jody Heiss, who is a, uh, he's an election liar. And yeah, I mean, that's what they're trying to do. And I think one of the things that I learned from Trump is you need to say this shit right up front and say it what's going on. And look, Liz Cheney's saying it too. I mean, she's not some NPR listing progressive. This is Liz Cheney. She's saying this. They're going to try to do it again. Kevin McCarthy. I've been saying this for months. Kevin McCarthy. If Kevin McCarthy is Speaker of the House, how do you think he's going to run the House if there is a challenge to a a challenge based in lies to a Democrat winning a free and fair election?
0: I mean, so I think that's my point is you see this coming. Yeah, we see this coming. Yeah. But I, but I have to keep going back to the facts, which is that the Trump administration and in the run-up to him becoming president was good for business. In October of 2016, the Washington Post reported that CNN would approach $1 billion in gross profit in 2016, a milestone unseen in its 36-year history. The internal estimate reflects a double-digit increase over 2015. And so... When I think about this, I have to ask you, Mm -hmm. do you believe the coverage can change if presented with another bombastic, captivating, good for ratings, vulgar figure in 2022 or 2024? Will it really be any different?
3: Yeah, but I think we've already proven it. I don't think anybody would think that we were soft on what was going on or not fair or accurate as to what was going on in 2020. By the way, I don't think we were in 2016 either, which is why I think I got blackballed by the Trump campaign. If I'm hearing you correctly, you're asking not just about CNN, but metaphysically more broadly, is the news media going to be better able next time a a lonesome roads comes around?
0: Because the news media has a fiduciary duty to retain viewers' attention, to turn them into profit, how do you navigate that?
3: This is going to sound corny and maybe unbelievable, but we just put on the best news show we can put on. We are not shying away from covering the threat to this country posed by those who are trying to get ready to undermine another free and fair election. We are covering that all the time, but we're also covering COVID and we're also covering Myanmar and we're also covering everything. And it it doesn't, I don't know a better system than a for-profit news media. I mean if you if you look at the BBC or CBC, they have their own problems too. I mean that is a non those are non-commercial, those are government funded media outlets. You can look at PBS and you can look at NPR. I like them both and I respect them both, but it's not as though they don't have their critics as well. I I think that the news media can rise to the challenge. I think that I feel good about the shows that we did in 2020, just last year, but also throughout the administration of Trump. And we're going to continue to do that. And I I don't think they're necessarily in conflict, the idea of having a financially responsible media organization that survives with providing facts and news. No one said to me after my Trump interview where I challenged him on the fact that going after Judge Curiel was racist. Nobody said oh, you're never going to get another Donald Trump interview. That's going to be horrible for ratings. No one said that. No one thought that, that I know of.
0: You grew up in Queen Village, Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. You were raised by a doctor and a nurse. And uh, this is what you said about them. They were part of that generation of thinking the world needs to be better. We're not doing enough for poor people. We're not doing enough for black people. We're... we're fighting a war that we shouldn't be fighting, and our kids are dying for no reason. There is something in me that gets really exercised when I think things aren't fair.
3: The feeling in my gut that I have when I report is the is the feeling that my mom and dad uh, put in me, that which you just reflected. I mean, they're still they're still alive. I think about them all the time. I mean, they're older now, but they they've fought injustice to the best degree they could. And you know, my dad is a retired pediatrician now. And one of the cases that he spends his time with is he's trying to, there's this guy named CJ Rice, a kid that he took care of and he had been shot and he had a horrible scar in the middle of his torso. And then like a few days later, CJ was accused of committing a crime that my dad is convinced he never could have committed because it would have required him to run Anyway, long story short, my dad testified, but C.J. had a shitty lawyer because CJ's poor. And C.J. is doing like 30 to 60 years in prison, 30 to 50 years in prison for a crime he almost certainly didn't commit. And that is trying to figure out how to get C.J. out of prison is one of my dad's animating causes right now. And so, I mean, that's just that's the kind of family I'm from.
0: Now that you have children, are you thinking about how do you instill some of that in them? In the way that your parents seem to do that for you?
3: I think they have it already to a degree. I mean, one of the, a memory that I have of 2016 is I came home from work and a guy named Guy Seisel, who ran a Democratic super PAC, had run, had just started running a, an ad against Trump sometime in 2016. Anyway, he had debuted the ad on my show. The ad featured the parents of a girl with, uh, some disability. I, I don't remember exactly. This is five years ago, but maybe she had um, cerebral palsy or something like that. Anyway, and it was the parents talking about Donald Trump making fun of Serge Kovaleski, that New York Times reporter who also uh, has a physical challenge. And it was my daughter. So she was, this is 2016. So she was nine years old, crying, weeping. How can Donald Trump make fun of somebody for having a disability? Because she had been watching my show. I guess my wife had been watching my show where the ad was introduced. And so my daughter was watching the show. And, you know, out of the mouths of babes, right? I mean, yeah, that's really cruel. It's super cruel. We all saw it happen. We all saw him make fun of this New York Times reporter who has a disability. And at the end of the day, I think that um, that was a very clarifying moment for me.
0: But I think that moment also speaks to What I know are your guiding principles, truth and decency.
3: Because as a journalist, you're kind of taught in the kind of journalism I do that, you know, I don't have a position on tax policy. I don't have a position on how to bring about peace in the Middle East. I know that the Palestinian people and the Israeli people deserve to live in safety and security and with human rights and human dignity. And it's impossible to say that Palestinians have that right now, but I I don't have a specific proposal. There is a degree to which I think that facts or truth and decency are things that we're allowed to take positions on and, in fact, supposed to take positions on. And it bothers me when I read press that doesn't, that just acts as if this is all just a game. Oh, isn't it funny, Kevin McCarthy, blah, blah, blah. Kevin McCarthy, is he lies about the election. I mean, like, we saw it happen. He is, you know, those lies whether the people heard them from Kevin McCarthy or someone else, those lies incited an insurrection in which people, thousands of people were trying to overturn an election because they had been lied to by leaders, Trump, McCarthy, Josh Hawley, and others. So yeah, I mean, truth and decency, I think, are things that we're allowed to take positions on, but not just allowed, supposed to take positions on, obligated to take positions on. If this job is afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted, if that's what journalism is supposed to be, Challenging people in power who are comfortable and advocating for people who are getting the shaft, who are getting screwed by whatever, whether it's geopolitical machinations or capitalism or whatever. I mean, we are supposed to be advocating for them and we don't do a perfect job, but we're supposed to try. Honestly, I have a powerful perch. I know I do. And I believe in accountability. I read a lot of criticism of me. Believe me, social media makes that very easy. But I read it because I know that some of it's true, some of it's accurate, and some of it can be better. I, I mean, some of my actions as a journalist can be better, and I'm never satisfied, and I probably never will be. And that's that's okay. That's just my neuroses or how I'm wired or whatever. But but that's all right. Like I, I'm just going to keep aspiring and. In the acts of trying, in the attempts, there will never be perfection, but there will be moments where somebody watching says, okay, thank God, this guy at the very least is horrified that so-and-so said this, or this anchor is willing to say this should not be this way in the United States. And even if it's just the few moments of comfort For people who feel that way, then that's the the trying is all I can do. Can we
0: watch something together for a second? Sure. Sure.
3: I hope it's not me because I hate watching myself.
0: Don't worry. It's not. Okay, good. I wouldn't do that to you. This is legendary anchorman Walter Cronkite, March 6th, 1981, signing off one last time before retiring.
5: This is my last broadcast as the anchorman of the CBS Evening News. For me, it's a moment for which I long have planned, but which nevertheless comes with some sadness. For almost two decades, after all, we've been meeting like this in the evenings, and I'll miss that. But those who have made anything of this departure, I'm afraid have made too much. This is but a transition, a passing of the baton. A great broadcaster and gentleman, Doug Edwards, preceded me in this job, and another, Dan Rather, will follow. And anyway, the person who sits here is but the most conspicuous member of a superb team of journalists, writers, reporters, editors, producers, and none of that will change. Furthermore, I'm not even going away. I'll be back from time to time with special news reports and documentaries, and beginning in June, every week with our science program, Universe. Old anchormen, you see, don't fade away. They just keep coming back for more. And that's the way it is, Friday, March 6th, 1981. I'll be away on assignment, and Dan Rather will be sitting in here for the next few years. Good night.
0: I know Cronkite is someone you've looked up to throughout your career. How did you feel watching that?
3: It's funny, because I was 12 when when he signed off, and I remember one time when he, Cronkite, referred to Jimmy Carter as Jimmy Walker on air, and... Well, either my mom or my dad, saying something about him getting old. I guess it was a year later that he signed off. You know, I have some Cronkite memorabilia, Moreau and Jennings and Russert and, and other people. And I think what's important for people like me to remember is very few of us get remembered. If we are remembered for anything, it's usually for a moment in the news that we are reacting to or reporting on, like Cronkite taking off his glasses to report JFK's death or Peter Jennings telling people on 9-11 to go hug their kids or go call their kids. And ultimately, what matters is the news, not us. And that's okay. It's The job is such a privilege and it is such a responsibility. And it's not to be abused. I see how some other people treat the gig and without naming names because that's just not my thing, you know, abusing it. Whether they're running to the soft end of things, showing kitten videos or whatever just to get viewers, or the other and the darker impulses, finding villains. That's an abuse of the desk and the microphone.
0: Old men, you see, they don't fade away They just keep coming
3: back for more. I don't think that's true. I think they fade away. (laughs) I think they fade away, and I think he faded away. I mean, it's a nice thought, but they do fade away. You know, they do. And I've seen a bunch fade away. Some of them snuffed out too early, like David Carr, or, or, or in terms of anchorman Peter Jennings, or Tim Russert. Some of them ignominiously shown a door. Some of them just heading off to the ranch, like Tom Brokaw. But we do fade away. If we're lucky, we fade away.
0: It was a damn good line, though, even though you shot it down.
3: <laughs> well, he's a, he was a genius. I mean, you know, he was a he was a brilliant broadcaster. There's no question about that.
0: As we leave, I bring all this up to say, what do you want for yourself?
3: I want my kids to remember me well when I'm gone. I want them to think that I was a great dad. And I want them to think that they're proud of the way I brought the news to the people who watched my shows. And that's really all I can ask for. And so I try to live up to that every day. Is
0: that a strange question to ask you?
3: No. I mean, I don't think I've been asked it before. But I don't know if you're hoping, if you know something that this is going to be for some obituary package that runs Sometime not soon. Sometime in the distant future. But, but uh, no, I mean, I don't think so. By, by the way, even in a
0: sentimental moment, thinking about how the TV could package <laughs> the content.
3: How could it be covered? How would it be covered? Most of us don't get covered. Most of us, our deaths do not get covered. You know, I've been taking, I took up genealogy Uh, during the pandemic. Well, I've I've been doing it for a long time, but I really took it up in earnest during the pandemic. One of the things that you learn pretty quick is that most of us don't get obituaries. And if we do, they're really thin. They're really short.
0: So if you're not properly covered upon death, do you think it's possible for you to be satisfied with the work itself while you're here doing it?
3: I I don't think I ever will be self-satisfied but certainly after a show i will say to my team great work you know that was a really good show we did a lot of important. we covered a lot of important stories there's a different i guess there's a difference between satisfaction temporary satisfaction and self-satisfaction and i occasionally have temporary satisfaction
0: here's the part of the line i do like old anger men you see they don't fade away they just keep coming back for more and i do think for the time being you seem like you're going to keep coming back for more.
3: Yeah, I think you can keep coming back for more as long as they keep putting you on TV, right? <laughs> that, that, that was my problem. Gronkite was kind of like being edged out. He was kind of being pushed out to make way for Dan Rather. I mean, th- that no offense to Dan Rather, but I mean, that was what was going on. So it was kind of, he left with dignity and he, he didn't leave entirely. But I'm going to keep coming back for more. No question about that. And I guess I'm an old anchor at this point.
0: Look, if you're pushed off the air... You always have a place here.
3: <laughs> I appreciate it, Sam. This was a this was quite a, a therapy session. Longer than fifty minutes, <laughs> but uh but definitely valuable. I'm
0: not even charging you.
3: I know, I appreciate it. Jake Tapper, stay safe. Thank you, my friend. You too.
0: our show special thanks this week to meredith weaver sydney white and the team at hatchet i'd also like to thank jake tapper his latest book the devil may dance is available wherever you do your reading of course you can also watch jake on the lead with jake tapper it's on every weekday monday through friday 4 to 6 p.m eastern time on cnn if you enjoyed today's episode I imagine you would enjoy past conversations with folks like Noam Chomsky, Dr. Cornel West, Better O'Rourke, Representative Ilhan Omar, and many, many more. You can find those on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you do your listening. To learn more about this show, visit our website at www.talkeasypod.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. And if you'd like to join our mailing list, drop me a line at TalkEasyPod at gmail.com. Our executive producer is Janik Sabravo. Our associate producers are Caitlin Dryden and Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lynn. Our editor for today's episode is Clarice Guevara. Our assistant editor is Joshua Siegel. Our interns are Jilly Harold, Patrice Lee, Grace Perkins, and Callie Syringus. Our illustrations are by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Aberzak, Orion Huang, Ian Jones, Isabel Primavera, and Ethan Seneca. And of course, the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fergoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We're back next week with writer Ocean Wong. Until then, stay safe and so long.
1: The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you, and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry, and me, I'll be there too. Enter now at T-Mobile.com slash unconventionalawards. See you there.
2: This is the story of the one.